Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Dror Polek. He's an economic historian who explores how physical and digital systems affect human behavior, well-being, and dignity. Welcome to this show, Dror. Thanks, Mark. Pleasure to be here. So to get started, I read your book. I read a lot of your blogs online. Right, you talk a lot about, I guess, real estate and the impact of the internet on the real estate. So how do you sum up your thesis in two or three sentences? Technology is undermining the basic foundations of real estate value, the meaning of location, the meaning of visibility, the meaning of accessibility, and farther afield, the historical limited access to capital and information that kept the field relatively safe from competition. So all of these things are now scrambling a lot of what we know about buildings, and more broadly, a lot of what we know about cities and where people choose to live and work and socialize. So maybe this is kind of the, right, Mark Andreessen, software is eating the world and your kind of expertise is how software eats real estate. Yeah, you can say that. But I think part of the story is that also the world is eating software. So I would say over the first decade of the 21st century, we saw the growth of, you know, these really big pure software-ish companies, you know, the Googles, the emergence of Facebook, Twitter, even Amazon in its early days was, you know, more about being a website rather than being anything else uh, in terms of physical infrastructure. But then over the last five, 10 years, we started to see that basically software was starting to run out of things to eat in terms of pure software. We started to see the funding of more and more businesses that are actually touching the physical world, and they're also essentially not really software businesses in terms of their economics. So, you know, the Lyfts, the Ubers, the WeWorks, and even other categories that, you know, tobacco, fake meat, et cetera, et cetera. We're starting to see technology coming and trying to disrupt these type of things. So it still falls under the Andreessen software is eating the world possibly, but it's not necessarily driven by a venture kind of venture type returns anymore and by software types economics anymore. So I kind of tie into that from the other side, kind of looking at all these dynamics that disrupted online media and disrupted pure software markets and trying to think what of that applies to much more physical industries and particularly real estate, but a lot of things beyond that as well. So let's, I guess, go through like different categories of real estate. How should we think about the impact of software on residential real estate? So that's a big question. But generally speaking, We're seeing that location on its own is no longer as important as it used to be for various reasons. So if in the past you had to live within walking distance to your job and your job had to be, if it's a good job, at the center of a big city and over the last two decades at the center of only a handful of very large metropolitan areas, now that is changing. Beyond work, if you wanted access to all of the best services and all of the best products in the world, you also had to be at the center of those cities because, you know, you couldn't get it anywhere else. Likewise for education, for medical advice, and a lot of other things. So now we're seeing that these things are becoming much more accessible remotely, still on the margin in many cases, but to a significant enough extent that it's driving some changes in people's decisions on where they live. Now, that doesn't mean that people will not want to live where they already are or in the greatest cities that we already have, but it means that they will have to make these choices based on a different mix of factors, let's say. So it's no longer, okay, I have to live there because my work, because my job is there, but now it's more, okay, do I want to live here? And if I do, it's because of you know certain aspects of quality of life and the type of people that I have around me. And at the real estate level itself, the building has to learn how to attract you based on all sorts of other aspects. So not just, okay, this building is in a great location, but we offer all sorts of services that are specialized for whatever it is that you're looking for. And we offer flexibility that maybe is not available elsewhere. And we offer even alignment with all sorts of values and participation in something that you identify with 
that you know by choosing us you can now feel like you're contributing to so basically real estate physical buildings but also neighborhoods and cities are becoming consumer products they're becoming something that people have more choice about and that choice is driven more by external characteristics so again the brand the story the values that it's affiliated with all sorts of secondary features such as how is it delivered how am i paying for it how flexible it is rather than the kind of hard traditional key characteristics of okay where is this building what is it made of what kind of air conditioning system does it have how fast are the elevators things that traditionally used to drive value and define value in the real estate industry and this change once the dimension of competition is moving away from the old factors to the new factors it also opens up the possibility for all sorts of new players to come in and be much better than the old companies at all of these new things we work is probably the most famous example of that so you know we work for all its faults did manage to attract half a million people to come and pay a premium in order to take spaces from it and these people basically voted with their feet by saying hey i'm not going to go to the fanciest biggest building in the best location in the city because now i care more about like the design or the community or the brand and whether that brand serves meat or doesn't serve meat and what kind of music do they play in the lobby and what kind of general vibe do they have and just like any other brand to many people from the outside this might look silly or frivolous but to the people who actually like this brand it looks great because they're saying okay finally there's a product that is exactly what i'm looking for that is catered towards people like me and not just like a general one size fits all thing that also happens to cater only to large corporations rather than like me as an individual sure but it's another part of the we work story just that i mean like kind of uber for a long time it was large venture capital funds subsidizing consumers as well as just like a lot more kind of flexibility. If you're a two or three man office, you know, or like finding traditional office space is a giant pain in the butt because you don't want to sign a three or five year lease and you want to have a lot more flexibility to grow. And to a certain extent, it's not obvious to me that the value proposition of WeWork was the brand per se, so much as Mm -hmm. basically like flexible, non-long-term commitment office space. Yeah, so that's a fair question. The funding model and the lack of profits is definitely a big part of the WeWork story. But unlike with Uber, WeWork's losses were driven mostly by very, very fast expansion, by the fact that they were signing new leases and investing in build-outs. It wasn't driven so much by them subsidizing the actual cost, you know, on a gross margin basis for every seat. In terms of the prices that they charged, they were very comparable to what other more like old school flexible office, you know, service office operators have been charging for decades. So unlike Uber, where every time you you took a ride on Uber, the company was losing money on that ride alone without even taking into account you know, the, the overhead that they have or the tech and the marketing. The ride itself was much cheaper than a traditional taxi because Uber was trying to gain market share. In WeWork's case, actually the seat that you were renting was costing you more than a traditional seat in an office and even more often than the traditional seat in another flexible office run by you know one of these old school companies. So that's important to note. And even... Those old school companies, so Mark Dixon, who is the CEO of Regis, which is still actually the largest flexible office company in the world and has been around for a few decades, said that when he looked at their business, he said, they're exactly the same as me. You know, they have the same margin, they have similar kind of price point. How come they're getting those crazy valuations and how come they're kind of getting all this hype? So, yeah, I would say that it wasn't attractive because it subsidized people to any extent. It was attractive to investors because it subsidized its growth, maybe in an unsustainable way, which is a fair point. But when we gauge what made it attractive to consumers, it wasn't that it was cheaper than other places per se. And even on that front, I remind you that there's a lot of other companies that were trying to do exactly what WeWork was doing, including landlords themselves who have been trying to do it and are still trying to do it and are not as successful at it because they don't bring to it all the other kind of narrative elements that we were brought into it. But maybe more importantly, we see this in the world of all consumer brands all the time. You know, people, if you just look at the products that its actual characteristics, you'd say, okay, why are people buying this phone over that phone? Or why are people buying this watch over that watch? You know, there's no reason for them to pay five times more. But they do because they want to identify with something. And more importantly, they want something that is specifically tailored to their needs. 
that is not just the best watch, but it's the best watch for people like me that have this specific need and take it for this type of activity and like to buy it in that certain way and like to have it delivered in that certain way. And people pay a premium for that. And that's something that historically real estate was not very interested in. The whole source of value for real estate assets is the fact that they're boring, the fact that they're one size fits all, the fact that they are completely fungible and the landlord doesn't have to care about whether the tenant is like a law firm or a media firm or a big company or a small company. Historically, they would build more or less the same thing. They would sign more or less the same leases. And they would assume that if one tenant moves out, another one comes in and replaces them and they don't really need to know too much about their business or aspirations and definitely don't need to know too much about the individual people who work for their tenants and what they care about or don't care about. So let's go back to residential. You, in the I guess, previous kind of discussion, you were focusing on how now people are looking at, I guess, residential more as consumer goods instead of just as, I guess, a kind of complements to production in terms of location, in terms of aesthetics. How does this also affect, I guess, kind of the spatial like layout of cities. So for example, if we think about what I sometimes think is perhaps a somewhat analogous change to remote work, which is air conditioning. And what happened with air conditioning? You basically saw a mass migration from the Northeast, as well as a little bit of a decent bit from the Midwest to the Sunbelt, because people like when Sunbelt cities were then more livable with air conditioning, you saw a kind of mass change in, in human settlement patterns. So how should we think about kind of changes broadly, not just in like the, I guess, how real estate is consumed, but in human settlement patterns that result from the internet and remote work? So I see two maybe kind of contradicting or countervailing pattern. Like the, the first instinct is to say, okay, things are just going to disperse much more because they can. But on the other hand, with every technology that we've seen so far over the last 250 years that enable people to you know, to expand over larger distances, what we ended up seeing is bigger and bigger cities. So I wouldn't bet on cities necessarily becoming smaller or disappearing, but I would bet more likely on cities becoming even more segregated than they have been and even more unequal than they have been. Because now the cities that we have today, especially the superstar cities, are essentially bundles of people. And of two kind of big classes of people, you have the, let's say, so-called creative class, you know, the urban, highly educated, high-earning professionals. And then for each one of those, you have about five other people who are working in service industries in order to serve these people. Now, these two groups need each other. That bundle sustains itself because, you know, the service providers need those big-ish spenders, and the big spenders need access to all of these services that make the city wonderful. But now if you're saying to the creative class, hey, you don't have to live here anymore for your job, but maybe you still want to live here for your lifestyle. But even for the lifestyle, you no longer need to access a lot of these services physically necessarily. Then suddenly those people can say, hey, why do I need to live in New York in order to be around half a million people like me who are, you know, who I like to interact with? Maybe I can move to another place and just live next to half a million people like that, but without the other five million people who are here to provide all sorts of services and who are uh, requiring my taxes and who are angry at all sorts of things and they're protesting. Of course, I'm not condoning it. I'm just describing a kind of a big picture process that I see unraveling. That creates an opportunity to create more segregation within cities and also between cities and also the emergence possibly of new cities. So I don't see the question so much about, you know, where are people going to move to, but more about what will be the structure of those places that people live in, because I think a lot of people will still remain in the places that we have today, at least for the next decade or so. But to bring it to your area of interest, I do think that it does open up the possibility of the emergence of all sorts of affinity-based places, whether it is at the building level, as I mentioned, with things like WeWork, or at the neighborhood, or even at the city level, where people that, you know, share the same values are looking to build a new place. And now they're much less tied or much less hindered by various other considerations than they were, you know, even five years ago and definitely 30 years ago. Okay, let's get, I guess, some kind of concrete predictions. Like, will superstar cities, as a result of remote work, will they expand but remain neutral or decline? So I'd say it's actually going to get even more polarized there as well, probably. So I expect New York City, New York City, so Manhattan, to be actually more residentially populated in 10 years. What's the mechanism that it gets? Because at least if I think about like cities becoming less labor markets 
and more mm-hmm. basically consumption bundles, then yep. on net, it feels that that makes it slightly less attractive where, right, you do have, let's say, I don't know, right, 50% of hedge fund managers really like the consumption bundles. Maybe it's even more than that. Maybe it's 80% of, con- of hedge fund managers really mm-hmm. like the consumption bundles. Yep. But now 20% suddenly decide, like, I don't care about the consumption bundle of New York. I would rather live on a beach where it's hot all the time, or right. I would rather live like in the mountains just with my family mm-hmm. on a ranch, right? Like who knows? And it's not, it seems conservative to say that 20% of them would want that, but that 20% of hedge fund managers, right. if we assume we're only looking at the New York population, right? Moving out suggests that on net, actually New York ends up becoming less attractive. I agree with everything you said, but I see another a second half of the story where there's huge pent up demand to live in walkable cities like New York and like London. I'm not mentioning New York and San Francisco here <laughs> deliberately. And I think once these cities become more geared towards people living in them rather than you know prioritizing office buildings above everything else and prioritizing commuters above everything else, they're actually going to be much more attractive to those people and much more able to accommodate those people. So I do see more demand for that. Whether that means that on net, especially in the short to medium term, they will be able to make up for the tax shortfall for this transition is a separate story. And my bet here is probably no for most of them. So it will be a painful transition. But in terms of overall demand, I still see places like, again, like Manhattan, like London, like certain other cities around the world being even more attractive because If we are indeed moving from work determining where you live to lifestyle determining where you live, these cities are are very, very attractive. And they, if they allow themselves to accommodate all these people that want to live in them, they will succeed. And by allowing themselves, I mean, you know, enable people to build more housing, develop or improve infrastructure in a way that, you know, that is competitive to compete on taxation, which again, some of them are reluctant to do, but they will either be forced to compete or indeed fall behind because of it. But I think the their destiny is in their own hands in that sense. So I think they have that potential. So I think if they do die, it will not be because of remote work itself. It will be because of their failure to respond and to maximize the advantages that they have. All right. What happens to, I guess, like second tier cities? So like Austin, Denver, Seattle, do they benefit or do they lose from remote work? So they definitely don't lose. They benefit to the extent that they now have an opportunity. They have an opening to attract people as they have started to do before COVID as well over the last five, six years. However, even before COVID, we started to see these cities struggling with the same types of issues. You know, they don't have enough housing. Their infrastructure cannot sustain this type of growth. The high growth in living expenses and housing expenses is already causing all sorts of social tensions. And we're starting to see that probably the New Yorks and the Londons of the world are actually much better in dealing with these type of challenges than those smaller cities. And most of these smaller cities will just not be able to grow as fast as they can grow, just again, because they don't have the right infrastructure, they don't have the right housing policy. So I think that, you know, on it, I would say it's positive for them, but I think we shouldn't overestimate their ability to capitalize on the opportunity that they have. What about suburbs? One of the biggest impacts I think of when I think about remote work is there will be a lot of positions that will, like some offices will switch to full-time remote work. Some will do a hybrid. I'm skeptical of the hybrid model. But then there will be a lot where there's an expectation to be in like one or two days a week, maybe two or three days a week. And you can choose the same. It might be the same one to three days, or maybe it's different. But to me, that unlocks a kind of, I don't know, much wider suburb range where suddenly mm-hmm. you're willing to take an hour or an hour and a half commute if you're only doing it once or twice a week. If you're doing it five times a week, nobody wants to do that, but once or twice a week, suddenly you get 30% more square footage in your house. You get a quieter neighborhood where your kids can play in the yard, et cetera, in exchange for a, a very long commute that's only once a week. So it's not that bad or once or twice a week. Do you agree that this is going to lead to, I don't know, more suburbanization or am I missing something? Yes, generally. But here too, there's the composition of which suburbs will win or lose and what suburbs will have to do in order to to benefit from this growth. I think that's where, you know, those details are, are where it gets interesting. We're already seeing now, you know, in 2020 and up until now, how suburbs around all of these big cities are actually struggling to accommodate the growing demand or even the growing interest. You know, so housing is becoming more expensive. It's impossible to find service providers. Congestion is rising. So a bit like those second tier, third tier cities, I think the suburbs that will 
benefit most are the ones that are actually able to adapt, you know, to rezone some areas around train station, to generally orient themselves, you know, to double down on things that make life nice. If historically suburbs were more about, okay, we have a good school here and you have a backyard and you can drive back to the big city. Now, a lot of these movers out of the city and these explorers, and I'm among them, are looking for a certain lifestyle that is not typical of the American suburb, let's say, you know, so they want it to be walkable. They still want access to all sorts of, you know, to a high street or to places where you can go and see other people, again, that you can walk out of your house and and access those things. They want access to public transport, if possible. And most American suburbs in particular are not very good at providing these things. I think those that are, are going to benefit immensely. And those that are able to transition themselves into something similar are going to benefit as well. But here I actually see, and maybe this is the biggest opportunity of the next decade or two, is actually the the further urbanization of many American suburbs, you know, so to increase density there and to do so is a way in a way that is more more sustainable and more viable than what we have in our cities. Because a lot of our cities, I think in terms of their sunk costs, in terms of their overhead, in terms of their politics, it'll be very hard to reform them. On the suburbs, I think in many places, I see a, a healthier political environment a healthier even civic culture where, you know, people are already much more involved in decisions that are made around them and people are much more able to deal with people who are ideologically uh, not identical to them, which is something that, again, cities like New York and San Francisco are, are struggling to enable. And maybe because there's a higher percentage of homeowners, people are generally more committed to the place where they live and kind of more involved in the general institutions there. So I think that's probably the most critical question for America over the next 15 years. Can its suburbs evolve to become a little more urban, a little more dense, and to really be attractive to a lot of these people that now don't have to be in the city, but also cannot live their desired lifestyle in the suburbs as they currently are? So why, that's interesting, right? Because I think that's the first time I've heard somebody be more optimistic about upzoning the suburbs in the city. My impression of the suburbs is that they tend to be much less open to upzoning than the city in the sense that suburbs are largely the result of white flight in the 60s, Mm -hmm. right? There's a long history of redlining, of basically using zoning laws to keep undesired groups out. By the time Mm -hmm. you live in a city, for example, like I moved to Washington, D.C., and there's, I don't know, Right. There's a nearby park, Logan Circle, that I frequently go to. It feels like there's less of a sense of ownership of that park than there is of like the park. I spent most of the pandemic with my parents, like the neighborhood park where there's an elementary school, just because, right, like I walk to the neighborhood park that's an elementary school. You just walk a bunch of like, right, single family buildings and you kind of know or know the parents of a lot of the people there. While Logan Circle, right, to walk there, I walk past some like three, four, sometimes six story apartment buildings. There's a lot more cars on the streets. Uh, it feels like there's a much more diverse, I guess, larger group of people at the park where I'm often like two, three, maybe four degrees of connection removed. And to me, that kind of, to a certain extent, like mitigates the sense of like spatial ownership that I consider to be like the baseline for NIMBYs. So let me stop there and try to understand your kind of political analysis for why you're more optimistic about upzoning the suburbs. Yeah. So first, to clarify the premise I think most suburbs will fail at trying to do this, but I think some will succeed and will you know, create a path for others or at least an example. But because America, you know, most Americans live in suburbs, most Americans live in single family detached or you know, two family attached houses, the room for change there, if we can change a few percentage points, I think that, that would make a dramatic difference already. But in the suburbs, and I agree with you, there is that history of young, you know, of white flight and of segregation. And, and a lot of its effects and even its, its practical uh, constraints still persist and are still a big problem in this country. But I think we're starting to see examples of places that have to upzone if they want to have access to all sorts of things. You know, So again, if you have a, a train station, but you also want to have cool restaurants next to it and some offices for these people that are you know now working from home or from near home part of the day, you basically have to create more density. And by creating more density, I don't mean, you know, the type of projects, you know, low-income housing that you see in the city and, you know, let's build now 15,000 units around every train station. But I'm talking about going from, you know, two-story to four-story and from having, you know, a, a block and a half of retail to, you know, five blocks of commercial space near those train stations. 
And in a lot of suburbs, the area around the train station is to begin with, it's not where, you know, single family houses are. It's already often like a, a bit run down or it already has housing for lower income people. So it's not exactly, you know, building something in someone's backyard. I think it, it actually requires its own version of urban or in this case, suburban renewal. And I am hoping that in some places, that migration of people from the city that like that lifestyle have different values from, you know, the traditional values that typify the American suburbs is going to help drive that change. And not necessarily for idealistical reasons, but just for, for selfish reasons. Again, I, we just bought a house in a place called Port Washington. It's just on the edge of New York City. It's an extremely walkable suburbs by any measure, but definitely in relation to anywhere else in America. You know, it has sidewalks. I can walk to a train station. I can walk to a high street with various shops. I can walk to the beach. I can walk to some of the schools. But me as a resident now, I want, you know, more density in the high street. Like the high street, I don't live on it, but it's very, very close to my house. And I would love it if there are more services available here that I could walk to. And I realize that the price for that means that, you know, we probably have to upzone parts of that area. And I think there will be enough people who are going to be open to that, especially if the economic case is made properly. And I think the, one of the biggest challenges that we have over the next 10 years is to make that economic case. I'm definitely not taking for granted or saying that, you know, it's just going to happen because it makes sense. But I think there's a, an unprecedented opportunity to drive that change. And I think in some places it will work. And if not, call me an optimist, you know, I've been called worse things. <laughs> What historical analogies are most applicable to the current changes in real estate? Oh, they're probably, I mean, the most relevant ones to learn from are kind of parallels within real estate rather than parallels uh, across periods of time. And what I mean by that is, for example, the evolution of the hotel industry, which is a, probably my favorite example here. So, you know, historically hotels, especially in the, the railway era, were classic real estate assets, which meant, you know, location was almost everything. So, you know, you had a train line, you dropped people at a certain location every day at exactly the same time. And if you owned the hotel who across the road from that railway station, then, you know, you got the traffic and you got the business. Now, when people suddenly started to have more independent mobility to drive around in cars, suddenly... They, you know, the trains didn't deliver, you know, a captive audiences to hotels anymore, but actually the customers themselves could suddenly decide where to park their car and where to stop along the way and what's most convenient to them and what time they would like to arrive at, which then meant that hotels could be in all sorts of new places, but it also meant that the basis for competition for hotels became something completely different. So it wasn't anymore just about location. And again, it's not that location didn't matter anymore, it's just that it wasn't about only that anymore. But then it was about, okay, how do I convince people to pull over here and to come and park here and to come to my hotel rather than the other hotel who was, you know, half a mile before or half a mile after or further into the city? And then we saw the growing importance of brand for those hotels. So, you know, you needed that person to recognize the thing that they saw from the highway and to decide to pull over. And gradually, it also emphasized the importance of technology and of networks, because ideally, you wanted people to book stuff in advance and to call your 1-800 number or later to go to your website and book something rather than go to somebody else's website. So we saw the balance of power in terms of determining the value of the asset and the economic abilities of the assets shift from you know the hard characteristics of location and what the building looks like to things like brand and digital or kind of phone distribution and national advertising, which drove the emergence of big national brands for hotels and ultimately also changed the ownership structure of hotels. So if in the past you had these hotel companies who owned the buildings, operated the brand, if they even had a brand, and kind of did a bit of everything or just brought even a restaurant company in many cases to operate the, the hospitality aspects of the hotels, over the second half of the 20th century with the kind of advent of the automobile, we saw that ultimately the business of building the buildings that hotels are in and the business of actually managing the hotel brand and the consumer-facing aspects of it have become two completely different businesses, both in terms of the skills that they required and the management that they required, but also financially. One is a physical asset that is financed in a certain way, and those who finance it expect to get a regular mortgage payment and a regular dividend if they're you know, traditional real estate investors that, that buy income properties. 
And on the other hand, you have this kind of brand business that invests in technology, in distribution, in marketing that maybe can grow much faster, but has investors that expect, you know, higher returns, faster growth. But on the other hand, they don't expect a regular dividend and the type of stability or the type of guarantees that an owner of a physical asset requires. So what we saw there over, especially in the, in the 90s or so, is the splitting of these hotel companies into two separate entities in many cases. One is a real estate investment trust, which owns and develops the actual physical buildings. And the others are those brand franchises. So companies like Marriott and Hilton and others that these days mostly don't own any hotels and often don't even lease any hotels. They just own the brand. They provide the service envelope. And by brand, I mean multiple brands that cater to all sorts of specific groups with very specific needs. And I think this same dynamic is now coming to the office world and to the residential world, you know, which is why I use WeWork as an example. The specific characteristics of WeWork don't really matter here. The fact that it was long-term or short-term, or if it's for young people or old people, the fact that it even made these trade-offs is what matters. And I think over the next decade or two, we're going to see the emergence of multiple residential and office brands that cater to all sorts of types of groups of customers with all sorts of very specific and idiosyncratic needs. And to a lesser extent, but still a meaningful extent, we're going to see that with neighborhoods and cities as well. So places that cater to groups of people that now have more choice and are looking for something that is much more specialized to their very idiosyncratic needs. And by the way, this doesn't make sense. I'd love to hear what how you're seeing things. No, I think that does make sense. Let's assume that we have an entrepreneur listening to this who is looking for their next project. What is the business model for taking advantage of these shifting trends? So for cities, for buildings, for both? Residential, commercial, whatever. Yeah. So... The main thing you want to do is to have an audience, you know, to have a group of people that you have a story that clearly resonates with and that you can show a deep understanding of their needs and to prove that they're willing to pay a premium in order to have those needs met. Now, you definitely don't have to go and buy buildings and buy places. I would start by, you know, taking existing assets, whether they are distressed or even if they're doing well and either convincing their owners to try something new, but more likely to secure those assets by actually signing a lease initially, but proving that your model works, and then going out and raising more money, but raising that money in a slightly smarter way than WeWork did, which means for the real estate part, get real estate money. So get investors who are just looking to buy buildings and to get the return that they're used to from that and the level of risk that they're comfortable with. And on the other hand, get people to finance your envelope, your technological and brand and marketing envelope, who are looking to invest in that type of business. And yeah, I think that there's plenty of all of these things available now, which is why it's such a great time. I mean, there's plenty of capital available for any type of investments, whether it is for real assets or for you know venture type investments and technology. There's plenty of supply available, whether it is office or housing in some cases. And landlords are more open-minded now than they have ever been just because they're mostly shell-shocked. And, you know, they're, they're kind of looking at the world and trying to cling to anything that looks like certainty. And I think that a large enough percentage of them are now willing to bet or to experiment with all sorts of things because they realize that to figure out what will win over the next few years, they just have to make multiple bets. And, you know, there's no single answer. So, yeah, I would do what some of, you know, some of these great companies are already doing, what the co-living companies and some of the distributed hospitality companies and some of the co-working companies are doing. But I would learn from some of the failures that we've seen happen before. I mean, again, the WeWork failure was completely self-inflicted. I mean, they've done a lot of things that were just completely unnecessary. And they don't really reflect on the core of their kind of value proposition or the, the need that they identified in the world. I mean, the need that they identified is bigger than ever, but all the crazy stuff that they added around it basically made them a bad business as a business. How is remote work going to change the importance of time zones? I think time zones still matter, but here too, there's a marginal kind of flexibility that is being added. I just saw research from uh, a startup called Spaceflow, which provides some sort of kind of like a virtual office, you know, so like a place that people can just log into and then they can collaborate all day. And one of the kind of counterintuitive insights that they saw after analyzing, I don't know, millions of hours of people working together over the last year remotely was that time zones are still much more important than you would have imagined. I mean, the hours of the day that are busiest are the hours where there's an overlap between all those different zones where people are. But here too, it's the marginal difference that matters. So it's not about saying, okay, time doesn't matter or time does matter. But if 
instead of everyone being at the same place for nine hours a day, now you only need to have like three hours or four hours where people overlap. That still opens a lot of possibilities. Second, I think we talk a lot about remote work these days, but I think one of the things that remote work is driving is also the adoption of more asynchronous work, which has been a trend even before COVID too. And, you know, it's coming from the world of open source, but it's being adopted in in more and more industries and in more and more fields, not necessarily just in software development. And that also makes time less important than before. So if I would summarize my answer, I think time zones still matter, but these changes are opening up a lot of possibilities that were not possible before on the margins. And in addition, one thing I have to mention when we talk about time zones is Africa. You know, we have places in the world, or even South America as well, to a lesser extent, that have a lot of people that are just coming up. A lot of them speak English or French or other international languages. They're in the same time zone. And if you suddenly don't have to commute to the office, but you just have to be on the same time zone, then that's already a much a much less strict uh, constraint than before. And it opens up a lot of possibilities for those people and a lot of possibilities for people in developed markets as well to take advantage of all the skills that are available there. How are ghost kitchens changing the urban landscape? So this is another one of those models where, you know, software is eating the world and then it decides to take its views and its strategies that initially started completely uh, in the cloud or in software and then to bring them to, to the physical world. So, you know, cloud kitchens basically say, okay, we're like the AWS for the physical world. So instead of having your own infrastructure in-house or having a bundle in the old way where you have a kitchen and a restaurant and a place for people to sit and it has to be at ground level and it can only be in certain locations, we're just going to give you this kind of back-end capability that you can tap into for whatever it is that you want. And it, and it started with speaking about cloud kitchens, but now I'd say there's all sorts of other uses that are emerging to that, whether it's like small logistics or even putting together furniture or doing all sorts of other things just before you deliver them to the consumer, but not in a traditional kind of industrial or kind of larger facility outside of the city. I think these services are candidates for taking up a lot of the slack that is being created in the office world. So if we're talking about the city becoming a place for more people to live rather than more people to work and commute. Obviously, the ideal scenario is like, let's convert all these office buildings into housing. But in most cases, this is actually not going to work. But there's a lot of other housing adjacent uses that these offices are suitable for. And I think cloud kitchen and generally kind of last mile logistics and and even small scale manufacturing or kind of last step manufacturing or assembly could start to happen in a lot of this vacant office and retail as well. So, which is part of an even bigger trend when you talk about the urban landscape of, you know, a growing mixing of uses and a general shift away from just like, okay, this is employment. And then this other area around the city is housing. So more mixed use within the city, even in cities that are already very mixed, such as New York, I think we're going to see more mixed use. And and that means actually bringing in more industrial use into the city rather than just being residential and office, which, you know, to a student of history would sound very familiar. It's, these are the, the kind of early modern, pre-modern large cities that we already had, which were much more mixed and much more diverse in many ways and much more walkable. How should we expect these changes to impact productivity over the next 10 to 20 years? Hmm. Short answer, immensely, I would say. I think we're, we're opening the amount of time saving, I think, is significant. And a point that is even more, that specifically is interesting to me, is not just the fact that you're saving time for everyone or that you're using resources more efficiently or that you're using cheaper resources to do something that, that generates the same amount of, of economic value. To me, the most interesting change here is at the individual level. I feel, and I'm collecting data on it and trying to quantify it, that the old office world, the old nine to five world actually held back a lot of our most talented people. I mean, the fact that you forced them to work certain hours of the day in a certain way in a very specific environment actually held back a lot of our people. And in that sense, I always say, you know, geography is the patron saint of, of average performers. You know, he puts all of us in an office, which means that all of us can kind of churn out something reasonable, but the best among us probably cannot concentrate enough cannot produce their best because they're forced into this kind of uh, paradigm. And if we are indeed in a world where the most important resource is, is, you know, human ingenuity, which means the most important resource is human concentration, 
then whatever enables an exponential explosion in human concentration, I think, is, is super valuable. And I think remote work enables a lot of that. However, beyond what will happen in the real world, I think that we will struggle to actually measure these things properly and to see them probably fully reflected in our economic data, which I think is a problem that we've had over the last two decades or last four decades as well, where there's been a lot of growth in productivity and most of it has not been properly measured or reflected because a lot of it was free or just because there were other things that were easier to measure, which is what economists focused on. But overall, I, I think it will give a huge boost to productivity, but that boost will not necessarily have outcomes that people are happy with because it will probably mean more inequality, more polarization of income, more segregation in many cases. So purely economic, it might look good, but it will create all sorts of other tensions on the other side. How will remote work impact firm formation? That's another great question. I think here too, pretty dramatically, one of the interesting things, and again, this has been a trend for a while with the internet and even before the internet, you know, with more outsourcing, more experiments, at least with integration and and unbundling of corporations, more use of of on-demand skills, beyond labor itself, more reliance on APIs and, you know, on cloud services and other things that are completely on-demand and the modularization of a lot of aspects of work. And definitely by working remotely and working asynchronously, working workers and work itself is becoming uh, much more conducive to being much more on demand. So the transaction costs of getting that thing that you need when you need it are becoming lower and the options for getting those things are, you know, are expanding quite dramatically. So I think the result will probably be kind of a, an intensification, but quite a significant intensification of the trends that we've seen over the last 20 years, which is on the one hand, you see this emergence of long tail, much more flexibility, many more creators, many more kind of like mini superstars in different economies that are experts at different things that don't have a single job, but can work with the largest providers in the world. And on the other hand, we'll see actually bigger companies than ever, but then these companies are built more like networks or series of bets rather than kind of the traditional kind of structured corporation of the 20th century with with clear hierarchy and, you know, clear roles. I wrote an article recently about the evolution of the venture capital model. To go back to Mark Andreessen, so, you know, Mark Andreessen said that he sees Andreessen Horowitz as modeled after HP of the late 20th century. And HP was a corporation, but it basically saw itself as a series of bets. It has like this kind of big layer that does legal and marketing and distribution and sales. And it seeded all of those bets and the bets that looked promising, it gave them more resources to help them grow. So he saw venture capital evolving in that direction with A16Z basically providing that layer to its portfolio companies. But when I hear that, I actually think there's a broader implication here, you know, this is not just the future of venture capital, this is the future of the corporation itself. So if we are becoming more dependent on innovation, which means that all corporations will have to make many more bets, not just on initiatives, but even on individuals, you know, to know which one of those thousand people that you hired is going to come up with the next Gmail or with the next Instagram is barely impossible, even if they're all very, very talented. But you do want to have a piece of all of them. And Assuming that the one who can make more bets is the one that ends up winning, you know, you either become a huge company like Amazon where you have to hire millions of people and then see what happens, or you have to build a more efficient network structure where you can have a certain claim over the the future cash flow of whatever this person or this group or this team or this product can do, but at the same time, not to fully control it. And through that, to build economic value, and then the bets that seem promising to still give them all that support that HP used to give. So I think the future of the corporation, in some cases, will be these networks that have a piece of a lot of different bets and even of a lot of different individuals, but a much smaller piece and much less control than, you know, having an employee and telling him what to do and, you know, owning whatever it is that she or he end up producing. Does that make sense? It's kind of a bit abstract. Yep. How is remote work going to impact innovation? So that's the multi-trillion dollar question. I think it's going to it's going to have a, a net positive effect on it. You know, historically, urban economists and labor economists have, have pointed out that you know innovation can only happen in big cities. There's the knowledge is spillovers. The city in the world. Exactly. You know, so there's knowledge spillovers. There's improved matching. But indeed, the internet is the the most 
the biggest city in the world. And here you see the, the kind of two pillars of agglomeration, of urban agglomeration theory, which used to support the move to cities are now suddenly in conflict. So you have on the other, on the one hand, the importance of in-person interaction and of knowledge spillovers and kind of nearby complementaries in terms of, you know, okay, I'm here and I have all the lawyers I need and all the accountants and all the consultants and we all bump into each other in a bar. And on the other hand, you have the importance of the size of the talent pool and of matching with, you know, the most specialized person for whatever task that it is that you're trying to achieve. And I think that the, the matching angle and the depth of the talent pool of the internet is, is going to overwhelm whatever disadvantages there are to working remotely. I think the advantage of accessing a huge talent pool is going to overwhelm all of the pitfalls of, of remote work, especially since remote work is not really anti-cities or anti-people ever meeting each other or ever socializing or you know ever doing anything else. But yeah, so I think it will increase productivity. I mean, when I read urban economics books, even from five years ago, a lot of that sounds like, you know, a comedy now. And they say, oh, you know, this tech company is more productive because if they need a venture capital lawyer, there's one in their neighborhood. And if they need a VC experienced accountant, there's one in the city. And like, you know, who, what are you talking about? You know, like, I don't need to be in the same city to talk to the best lawyer on earth or to the best accountant on earth. Or for that matter, to exercise with the best fitness instructor on earth or to access that, at least to have a conversation with the best doctor on earth and to have them measure whatever it is that they want to measure about me remotely. It's all feasible now. And in five years, it's going to be <laughs> dramatically more feasible than it is today. So whatever the shape of the battle is today, it's, it's only going to tilt more towards remote productivity. Mark Andreessen, one of his interviews, made a prediction that everybody would be weird in two generations weird being Western educated, industrialized, uh, rich democratic, kind of the content of his claim is that the internet, which is primarily consumed or produced, the, the kind of content consumption is mostly from the US and Europe. And therefore, this is going to spread to other cultures and going to have a very profound impact on, I don't know, long term social organization. Do you agree with that claim? And if why? Yes. And if not, why not? First, it's a pleasant thought to contemplate. I've lived for 10 years in China uh, during a very dramatic period in China's growth, so 20, 2005 to 2015. And I've seen how you can, on the one hand, adopt a lot of Western ideas and a lot of Western consumer culture. You know, I was building shopping malls there. And on the other hand, become even more autocratic and actually leverage that culture and that technology to have further control and to move farther away from the Western ideals. And in two ways, one, you know, in terms of hard technology and using it to track people and to control them, but also in a soft way in terms of, you know, bread and circuses, you know, giving people, you know, okay, you can buy Louis Vuitton, you can buy a house, you can buy a car, but that actually means you have more to lose and you're going to behave now because, you know, this is how we designed the system. I do think I'm pessimistic on China as a model, because I think they couldn't have been able to achieve all of that without the West developing the technology and building the capital and, and giving them a free pass on a lot of things. But the fact is that they are you know, managing to do it, and we will probably continue to enable them to do it. So I can't say that I'm as overwhelmingly in agreement with Mark Andreessen here, but I do see points for optimism. I was thinking about it just this morning, you know, about 900 years ago in the Middle Ages, a lot of Greek science and Greek philosophy returned to Europe after being kept alive by scholars and merchants, you know, in North Africa and in Arabia and in the Eastern Mediterranean. And I think that over the next century, over the next few decades, Africa and Asia are once again in a position to rejuvenate the West. So I'm less hoping that, you know, we will spread all our values to them, but I'm hoping that they will help us remember what the West great in many ways but to also do it in a way now that, that is actually accommodating to all of the people on earth and uh, doesn't rely on colonialism and, and on violent oppression. And in a way, they are more, you know, people that I meet in or speak to in Africa and in Asia, in the developing world, they're actually much more optimistic and much bigger believers in a lot of the values that made the West prosper than the West is. So I'm optimistic in that sense, not in us, like, you know, spreading all our ideals to them, but in them helping us understand our ideals in a better way and to kind of charge a new, forge a new path based on those ideals, but in a way that makes more sense than, you know, the, what the West has been trying to do over the last 250 years in terms of spreading those ideals forcefully. Sure. How do you think about the kind of changes that you're predicting in American and I assume kind of like European high-income cities 
Will similar changes apply in cities in middle and low income countries? If yes, why? If no, what changes would be different? Hmm. I haven't thought so much about this question specifically. I think in, in middle to low income countries, I mean, in China, for example, you know, the labor market on the one hand, of course, the economy is competitive in many ways, but the labor market, it's competitive. But I think the employees have much less power compared to the employees here because there's always new people moving into those cities. The economy as a whole is in much higher growth mode. So there's less of that zero sum vibe that we have in the West which means that employees still feel like they're competing against a lot of other people. And even if they're really skilled, they have to kind of put up with whatever it is that their employer is telling them to do and work really, really hard. Uh, you know, they're still kind of moving up in the world. They're much less satisfied than, than employees in the West. I think a lot of the drivers of this kind of choice that I mentioned in the beginning of our conversation and of people's willingness to exercise this choice, to say, hey, I'm not coming back to the office if you're forcing me to come back every day, or I'm, I'm not going to live in that place because I want to live somewhere else. I think these are still privileges of very advanced economies and of people who feel like, you know, if, if you can't get me, you'll never find anywhere else like me, which in China, even with the best engineers, they still assume that there's just a much bigger kind of backlog of people that are breathing down their neck and they're moving up in the world that will come and replace them. So I think it will take a little longer there. It, it really depends on the stage of development because, you know, some of these countries obviously are going to leapfrog a lot of our assumptions altogether and just build their their economy differently. But for those that already have large cities like China, I think the change will be slower, but it is coming as well. I mean, we started to see even in China, this new movement of people uh, kind of lying down in protest to uh, the 996, you know, like working nine hours a day, six days a week. I forgot what's the other, <laughs> what's the other nine for. But, you know, even there, we're starting to see a backlash because again, if the economy is indeed moving to depend on a handful of very, very talented people and on their level to concentrate and innovate, then these people are going to have an increasing amount of power. How is transportation technology going to change cities? Self-driving cars, micro-mobility, meaning scooters, bikes, Hyperloop, supersonic? So this too comes back to undermining the basic assumptions that we have about location, accessibility, visibility, and the general growing dynamism and competition between places. So if in the past, I mentioned that hotel near the train station, that dynamic still applies today, you know, to office buildings that are on top of a train station or to apartment buildings that are near public transport or near, or near a road. And these type of things, that type of infrastructure made for a very static market in the past. So, you know, if I bought a piece of land, I knew exactly how much traffic is going to arrive to it, I knew exactly what is being built, what is being planned for the next like 30 years. You know, New York, a new subway line takes 50 years to build. So if I buy a piece of land, I know what's going to be next to it in terms of infrastructure. But when you have things, I mean, start from micromobility, which is, it seems trivial, but now it means that people can move around along patterns that are completely different. They can go against traffic, they can go on the sidewalk, they can do all sorts of things to avoid traditional public transport, which is very kind of rigid in terms of the way it is planned, and even avoid cars to a certain extent, which only go on roads, which can only go in a certain direction. And again, they don't change very often. So it creates a more dynamic environment. It opens access to new areas. Flying cars and flying things, I think, are going to make a dramatic impact on the built world over the next decade. Probably less so, you know, people just driving around, everyone driving around in a flying car, but more about the flying things, you know, more about delivery and kind of smaller things that move around differently. And again, change where our warehouses should be, change the type of things that we can access and how quickly they can get to us if we need them, which changes the way a lot of our assumptions about where we need to be and how much space do we have and you know where do we have openings to buildings. So, so I think overall it, it contributes more to, to this growing dynamism and to this growing competition, which then leads again to the fact that you know if you want to attract people, it's less about you know your specific location on the physical traditional characteristics of your building and more about what else are you offering and how are you meeting the specific needs of that specific group of people that you're targeting more broadly it's a bit like the remote work conversation you know so if suddenly people can go in and out of the city very very quickly what does it mean for the city i'm not sure and frankly i think remote work is probably a more interesting and more dramatic factor than you know people being able to fly from the suburbs to a meeting in the city very quickly, or, you know, even within parts of the country. Who is Mayor Suarez, and how should we interpret his success as being, I don't know, a front runner for the future of cities? So Mayor Suarez of Miami, 
understood a lot of the things that we just discussed. That, you know, a place is, is more about a narrative. It's more about having a specific attitude. It's more about picking a group of people that you're trying to cater to and then trying to attract them. And at some point during COVID, he realized that, you know, Miami has a lot to offer. And interestingly, I think as a mayor of Miami, you, you actually don't have a lot of formal power, I think, because there's mayors of, you know, the, the cities underneath him who are actually deciding most of the things. But he embraced that and he serves more as an ambassador of telling people, hey, you know, my city welcomes you. I want more innovation. I want more startups. I want more VCs. We have lower taxes. We have a certain lifestyle. We don't have a lot of things that you would expect to see in the biggest cities in the world, but we have other things. And we think that those things are now more appealing to you than, than whatever it is that your city is offering. And he's been able to attract you know, a bunch of VCs to move or to open offices and representations in the city. He's been able to attract more entrepreneurs to give the city uh, at least consideration and to go there and to spend some time. And what he's hoping to achieve is you know, to kickstart some sort of, uh, of virtuous cycle. Because, I mean, a city is ultimately a network with network effects, right? The bigger it is, the, the more valuable it is to everyone else there, assuming that those people have something to benefit from each other. So he's trying to kickstart that process. It seems to be working and he's making noise. And also he did attract people. And I think in terms of, you know, employment and investment and other specific metrics, it seems to have a positive impact. But here too, I'll kind of temper this story with what I said before. They think that a lot of these smaller cities are going to bump into a lot of the challenges that New York and LA and San Francisco are, are struggling with. And they're going to to meet those challenges much sooner in their development, then they're not necessarily going to be in a great position to respond to them. So again, like traffic, lack of infrastructure, housing costs, density issues. I think what he, what Mayor Soares is doing is a great start, but then to actually reap all the rewards that he's now exposing himself to, they'll have to make like hard changes in the physical environment in those cities. And I think that's a much bigger challenge. I'm not saying that it will not happen, but I think that's a completely different story. So again, to change infrastructure, to change zoning. What does the tech diaspora mean for the future of cities? What do you mean by tech diaspora? Like people... Moving from SF in the tech industry, bringing their values, culture, networks, etc. to other cities. Here, a bit like the Miami story, I think it creates, of course, a lot of opportunities. But in a way, it undermines itself because if these people will move and will bring with themselves their nimbyism then that's not going to help you know if you move to austin or to you know arizona or colorado or florida and then you're not willing to you know vote for more housing you're not willing to uh, <laughs> help keep taxes low you're not willing to kind of embrace a lot of the things that made those places attractive to you to begin with then you're not going to help those places respond to your own arrival in a way that helps keep them sustainable and great. You're just going to make them more expensive and less attractive to other people, which might be great for you, which is part of the issue here, but it's not going to be great for a lot of other people who arrive there later. I mean, one of the biggest conundrums in cities is that you know the people who are already there have all the power, and then in order to grow, cities have to actually accommodate people who are not already there, but there's no one to speak for them. And even within the people already there, there's the homeowners and the ones that are not homeowners yet. And here too, those that are already kind of comfortable have too much power at the moment, which is why in most countries around the world, the zoning is much less of a local issue than it is in the US. In many places, it's federal, or at least it has like clear federal guidelines, or at least it's not something that is decided at the neighborhood or at the town level in order to, you know, think of broader consideration for society and the economy as a whole rather than of the interests of the people who live there. But, you know, that's a fine and important balance. And then that's one of the unique things about America that, you know, you have, you have conflicting values here. On the one hand, you say, okay, it's my private property. I want to be able to decide with myself and my neighbors what happens where I am. And on the other hand, you say, okay, but we want prosperity. We want to accommodate more people we want growth and we want sometimes to force ourselves to do things that are good for the commonwealth of everyone and ultimately for us as well, rather than to our own narrow interests. But balancing those interests is uh, is tricky. And I think we'll see different places experiment with that in different ways and, uh, you know, may the best team win. So we're coming up on the end of the episode. Are there any questions that I should have asked you that I didn't that you would like to answer now? 
No, but I would love to hear a little bit more from you about, you know, what opportunities do you think the shift to remote is creating for charter cities and where are we most likely to see kind of concrete steps forward on that front over the next decade? So one project that we're working with, for example, is in Zambia. They do not have charter city status. It's a satellite city development outside of Lusaka. They hope to get charter city status at some point in the future, but they're focusing on knowledge work. So Zambia is a landlocked economy. They mostly export copper. But the question is, how do you kind of start creating a different industry base? Because it's landlocked, transportation costs are high, which make manufacturing difficult and kind of traditional, the traditional industrial sector. But right there, English speaking. So with remote work, they can uh, take jobs in the U.S. or kind of with the I expect time zones will get increasingly important. And so because they're effectively in the t- same time zone as most of Europe and they speak English, there's a substantial arbitrage opportunity there where they could be designers, they could be computer engineers, they could be even nurses and doctors if they're just like reviewing charts and stuff and making recommendations, right? Obviously, you can't do any of the hands-on stuff remote, but there's a lot of hands-off stuff. You could be accountants, etc. I suspect there will be more of such projects. I'm relatively bullish on, they're not really satellite cities, but like satellite towns, like an hour outside metropolitan areas that suddenly become bustling and probably target more on like local, I guess, affinities. I think there is... So at the Charter Cities Institute, we are not focused on like remote work and I guess technology per se. We tend to think that the if you look at uh, where most of the urbanization is happening in Africa and Asia, there's 75 million new urban residents annually. And the way to create jobs for most of those people is manufacturing, right? That's been the dominant path, which every country up till now effectively has escaped poverty. There's some examples like India has grown relatively effectively without a large industrial base. The question is how sustainable is that growth, which remains to be seen, but kind of China, Japan, Korea, Southeast Asia now, right? Europe, the US all grew with strong industrial bases, which tends to be much more labor intensive. Remuneration tends to be much less substantial than the technology sector, but that is what we see as the core. So that's kind of what we advocate. I see the kind of remote work charters, remote work as, as playing part of that. Then there is a question of like, for example, once robotics get good, it might be possible to replace the like attendant, I don't know, a gas station or the attendant um, who's taking tickets to right, like go into a parking lot or something like that. Many of those jobs might be e- easily replaced by somebody in India or Bangladesh who sits at a computer all day and just like presses a button, yes or no, or something like that. So I, I do imagine that that will change kind of, I don't know, working settlement patterns. But that's, I think, a little bit outside of the scope in which most Americans typically think about remote work. Yeah, that makes sense. One other topic that we, one word that we didn't even mention today is crypto, which is probably relevant here in a few different ways. <laughs> How so? How so? So I think in a few ways. One, in providing people the chance to build alternative institutions, which are somewhat government-like, which is part of the idea of a charter city, right? Like we want to have the right to kind of build our own little thing and experiment with it. but without going too far and without building our own army. Uh, so crypto allows you to do that you know, in the virtual world, but also to a certain extent in the physical world. Second is being a locus for community, is being a place that attracts specific types of people and enables them to build tools that align their incentives in all sorts of new ways, which here too, I think you know, building a new city and a new physical community, a lot of that is about how do we align everyone's incentives. And a lot of the challenges that we discussed today in terms of, you know, zoning and infrastructure and how to make sure that, you know, that the decisions are made by the right people at the right time and that the benefits are shared with the people in order to incentivize them to welcome new people and to help the growth of the community overall, rather than think about whatever it is that they own. I think there's a lot of room for experiment here. Third, crypto is also kind of a way to play the biggest political powers in the world against one another. So, you know, we're seeing now with the U.S. and China kind of trying to figure out what's their approach to it. Do they embrace it? Do they build it on their own? Does China want more people to use Bitcoin in order to undermine the U.S. dollar? Or is it more scared that people will use it and undermine China itself and be more free and more resistant to censorship? And I think by having this external point of pressure that at least creates some sort of threat on the old political structure... And in doing so, I think it represents the broader threat of the internet itself to these institutions. I think it might make more of these large countries more open to experiment with things like charter cities. We're saying, okay, we have our own way of doing things. Obviously, we're not going to change overnight. Or maybe we're not going to change at all. But we're going to be willing to 
allow all sorts of smaller experiments. We're going to be willing to try different things and to put them in a sandbox and to see what happens. And I think, you know, charter cities are, uh, are exactly that. So, yeah, so I think that that's a relevant aspect of it. And then, of course, it ties also into remote work and into distributed work, which are both kind of the, the natural <laughs> work culture, I think, of the crypto world in most cases. And also that they allow you to have a global workforce that gets paid in the same currency and that gets compensated easily and automatically for all sorts of smaller tasks and on-demand things. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of, of various tangents here that, uh, that are worth exploring in the future. Uh, great. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Mark. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast.